Emma, want to want to introduce our speaker. His name is Pastor Alex Wallington. He's joined us many times. If you at, you've been at City Light for a while, you've heard him speak. He's the campus pastor at USC for RUF. That's our denomination's uh, organization on campus, Reform University Fellowship. And he does just an amazing job shepherding people, loving on college students, sharing the gospel with them, especially during this time when a lot of people are hurting. Alex is from Lookout Mountain, Georgia. I learned a lot about Georgia this week, along with a lot of people. Uh, he lives here with his beautiful wife, his three kids. Um, he lives here in L.A. So I want to welcome him to speak to us. He's going to be speaking to us from Matthew 5 on how to love your enemies. So Pastor Alex, want to welcome you during this time. Thank you, Dennis. If you have a Bible or your phone, some sort of device that you'd like to follow along with me, I'm going to read this text from Matthew chapter 5. Um, this comes from what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. That is uh, Jesus' first and most famous sermon where uh, he's not talking to us about sort of how you become a Christian uh, or even like how salvation works. His sermon is about uh, what salvation will bring and, and what, what the world will look like when Jesus' salvation comes into it and begins to affect it. So it, it's almost uh, like a sermon on what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, in this text, uh, Jesus begins to talk about if you're following him, this is what your relationship uh, with your enemies and the world will look like. He says this in Matthew 5, beginning, beginning at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. I mean, our, our culture, it feels like... Uh, we're at a junior high dance. You remember those where um, you got there, you got your pizza, got your soda, and the, the ring was just divided into two groups of people. It was like the boys on one side and the girls on the other side, and everybody just sort of stared across the room, and nothing sort of happened in the middle of the floor. Uh, and we just sort of thought thoughts about each other, maybe wanted to make moves, but nobody made a move. I mean, today it just feels like half of our country is on this side of the room and the other half of the country is on this side of the room. And what I want to say to you this morning is that I think that this text calls Christians to dramatically 
make the first move. That it is incumbent upon us, what Jesus tells us in this text, that Christians ought to be the people who are willing to get out in the middle of the floor and go engage and have relationships with people who we are deeply divided with. And so let's talk about this morning about making the first move. And, and Jesus sort of gives us four aspects of making the first move. Who, what, why, and how. Who are to make the fir- first move towards. What the first move will look like. Why we need to make the first move. And four, how do we actually make the first move. So first, who do we make the first move with? Well, Jesus says this, our first move is towards our enemies. He says this in verse 43 and 44, if you have that. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why would Jesus be saying this? When uh, he says, you have heard that it was said, some people wonder if Jesus is sort of uh, opposing the Old Testament, as if uh, the Old Testament said it was okay to hate people and uh, to do certain things to your enemies, but the New Testament and the Gospels says something different. No, no, no. He says, you have heard that it was said. Because what would happen is that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to think that the Old Testament laws only applied within the Jewish community. So that when the Old Testament said, uh, love your neighbor, what they believed that that meant is that I only have to love those people who are in my community of faith, but everybody outside of my community of faith that does not apply to. And so what they even began to say was that the law actually uh, not only doesn't require me to love those who are outside of my faith, it even licenses me to hate those people. And Jesus is coming into sort of that paradigm and saying, no, 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 no. If you're going to be a part of my kingdom and you're going to know me, love extends not just within the community of faith, but outside the community of the faith and outside the community of faith with people who are considered almost your enemies. And right away, what Jesus is sort of doing for us is he's actually redefining the nature of love, that it's not Christian love until it begins to touch your enemies. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, love means loving the unlovable or is no virtue at all. It must touch our enemies. So who are our enemies? Well, let me give you three categories, I think, for sort of modern enemies, if you consider yourself a Christian. Those who oppose you, those who hurt you, and those you disagree with. I mean, those who oppose you. I mean, here I'm thinking about sort of uh, spiritual distinctions, uh, other faiths, um, you know, Christians in a secular world, people who don't believe the same things as you. Um, When the Bible talks about being an alien and stranger in this world, that identity is meant to drive us deep into hope and longing for the next world. It's not meant to drive us into a victim mentality in this world that can manipulate power. So when we're opposed because of what we believe and how we view life, none of those oppositions should drive us into like this whiny mentality where it looks like everybody's out to get us. People are going to disagree with you if you're a Christian. That's fundamental to what it means to be a Christian in a fallen world. But those who we disagree with, we can't turn it into our own like little Selma project. We have to look at those oppositions as opportunities to extend love to people who will never agree with us. 
those who oppose you, but also those who have hurt you. I mean, one of the most destructive things you could ever do in your life is let somebody who hurts you become your enemy and never, ever stop being your enemy. I mean, people who have hurt us uh, tend to be some of the largest chapters in our own personal story, and they can be clouds over our whole life. Now, Jesus is not saying here, though, that like somebody who's hurt you, uh, you have to immediately just work through that. So like, this is the one little caveat about this. If you've ever experienced like abuse in the church, um, spiritually, physically, or even sexually, Jesus here is not saying, hey, 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 get over that and forgive them and, wa- and don't let that bother your life. But at some point in your life, the enemy that, those, that that person justifiably became has got to stop being the enemy. One, per, one person put it this way, because if you don't heal from what hurt you, you'll bleed on those who didn't cut you. Your enemies, at some point, have got to be people that you, you have the courage in the faith of the gospel to look at again. Those who oppose you, those who have hurt you, but let's talk today for a minute about those we disagree with. And I'm thinking here about political, ideological disagreements because we're in a huge danger in this culture of joining in the binary divisions. As We have the tendency right now to uh, view the majority through the sound bites of, of the minority. That when we hear one thing said from somebody that we disagree with, and it's like the most outlandish thing, we are applying that across the board almost uh, with everyone who sounds anything like that sort of minority soundbite. And what we feel like is, is that the crazier those get, the more we have the right to do that. But look, Jesus, when he talks about uh, not judging, and he'll say that later in this exact sermon, he says, do not judge. People who we disagree with, Jesus is not saying don't ever disagree with people. And he's not saying uh, don't ever have opposing beliefs with people. But we have the tendency to not just oppose what you think, but to oppose you. Because when he says do not judge, he's not talking about opposing your beliefs. He's talking about looking at people and saying, I don't just like you, I I, I dislike. I don't just dislike what you're saying, I dislike you. And see, when we do that, each time that we do that, what's happening in our heart is we're actually taking steps up a self-righteous ladder. And the higher we get and the more steps we take, the people that we oppose look less and less like people. And they look like things that can be done away with. And Christians in this divided political world have got to stop taking steps up those ladders and start taking steps towards people. Do you know what um, pretenders and contenders are? They, They talk about this sometimes, sports commentators do. That what a pretender team is, is somebody who starts out their season, you know, maybe in the NFL, like 5-0 and uh, or a baseball season. They have a great couple months. And the, re- the reason they call them a pretender is because their good record is reflective of probably the idea that they haven't played anybody tough yet. That way we say, well, they seem like they're good, but we'll, we'll find out how good they are when they play the really tough competition. Because what a contender is, 
is somebody who survives their, the easy part of their schedule, but also when the really tough part of the schedule comes, that's when they show up and show you what kind of team they really are. What Jesus is saying here about our enemies, do, you cannot think of yourself as a loving person if you only love those people who are easy to love. And for many of us, it's so easy for, for us to think of ourselves as a loving person because we only surround ourselves with people who think just like us. But what makes it really Christian and what makes it go from a pretender to a contender is when you are engaging in doing life with people who are not just like-minded like you. They are the opposite of how you think. They are sometimes people who have hurt you, and they are sometimes people who have nothing spiritually in common with you. And that's the that, that's who we have to make the first move towards, those kinds of people. That's the who. Secondly, though, what is that move? Well, Jesus says this in verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, this, this idea, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was sometimes uh, used and is commonly used today as it feels like a license for retaliation. But actually what Jesus is doing is he's trying to speak into a legal principle and actually redefine its meaning for us. Because what the legal principle here was, that an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, was a law that did not um, was not meant to be an incentive for revenge, but actually... Um, was meant to limit retaliation. Because we have the tendency in our heart, human heart that anybody who hurts us to want to apply revenge and punishment at a greater level than they, they actually dished out to us. And what the law, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth meant was it said, okay, you can only give back to people no more than what they took from you. And what Jesus is, is trying to speak into is, look, okay, the law, what it did in a graceful way was limit the amount, of, the, the amount of justice you could apply to a painful situation. But he says that's not the point of the law. It's, it's not that you appeal to that and say, listen, I have the right to give you, back to you what you took from me. He says, look, love doesn't always appeal back to that. See, what love does is it doesn't just stick to you, the law for your rights. But it goes further than the law actually demands and exceeds the wrongdoing. And what the first move must be is for Christians to look at the rights that they feel like they have and to not appeal back to them. He gives four examples of this. The first one he gives in verse 39, he says, turn the other cheek. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Jesus is not talking about uh, if somebody punches you and you have a physical alteration with you, just stick your face out and let them attack you. It's not talking about that. It's not, talking, it's not a comment about never going to war or anything like that. Slapping the right cheek was uh, a way to insult people in the ancient Near East. And the tendency with an insult is for us either to retaliate right away and if you slap my right cheek, I'm going to slap your right cheek. Or to just walk away and, as we do in the modern day, ghost them. So when Jesus says, if they slap you in the right cheek, give them the other cheek, what he means is don't appeal to your rights just because you've been disrespected. He says, continue to engage them. 
Continue to stay in their relationship. Continue to pursue them. The next example he gives, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Look, your tunic, your inner garment, was uh, it, it was covered by a cloak. And the Old Testament said that you had a right to have your cloak. Uh, it was what you wore on the outside to keep you warm. It was often your bedding. And it was a sacred thing that could never be taken from you. And even the law protected you from that. And so Jesus here is pressing on our tendency to appeal to things of what is fair and just and even right. And Jesus is saying, listen, there are times that love will ask you to look at what is even just and fair and right and put that down for the sake of loving somebody else. The next example, go the extra mile. He says this in verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is the Roman law that uh, the empire would, would abuse uh, Israel civilians by grabbing them like in a normal day experience. And if they were doing something that you, uh, whatever you're doing, they, would, they could grab you and say, come help me do this. Um, help me work on this project or carry this thing. But the law said, hey, they have the right to grab you and to do that, but you only have to go one mile. And Jesus is saying, don't stop at the one mile. Go with them as long as it takes to get that thing done. And here, he's basically saying, love is calling you to go beyond the bare minimum checklist. There there are so many times that people have hurt us, people we disagree with, and we just go, well, I tried. I texted them. I asked. I called them. I made an attempt. And Jesus says, listen, don't let your definition of love, be driven by the bare minimum. Keep going. Do, go as far as it takes in order to engage and get out there on that first move. But also says uh, the, the fourth example in verse 42, give to the one who asks. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I mean, so often we give out of guilt uh, or we refuse to give because we say things like, I'm worried they're going to use it on something bad. And he's just saying, give without conditions. Just just give graciously. Paul summarizes sort of all this in Romans 12 when he puts it this way. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So do not overcome uh, by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thomas Watson, uh, the great Puritan preacher, had a treatise on uh, the Christians um, forming into the image of Christ. And he said, you know, there, there are two uh, images of Christ. There are two sort of images of, of uh, the attributes of God. There are the incommunicable attributes of God, and there are the communicable attributes of God. Part of God's character is that he is all-knowing. He is uh, the judge. He is all-powerful. He is all-controlling. And uh, the other parts of God's character is that he is merciful. He is loving. He is kind. He is gracious. And uh, Watson says, like, 
the natural tendency of the human heart is actually that we all want to grow in the character of God, that we all want to be shaped into the character of Christ, but we want to be shaped into the incommunicable parts of Christ. We want God to remake us in a way that we actually are all controlling. We're uh, all just, we are the ones who make all the decisions. We're the one who sits on the throne. But we have the tendency to not actually want at all to grow into the image of Christ that God wants us to grow into, and that's his loving, kind, gentle, gracious heart. And what Christian sanctification truly is, is being molded into that image of Christ. And Jesus here is saying, listen, the image that we are meant to be formed into is this merciful, gracious image of Jesus. And it's done by us really removing and taking the rights of our life off of our hands. I remember there was a girl in my ministry one time who just had all sorts of destructive relationships. She, um, she would have friends that sometimes would be her best friend for six months, and then it would blow up. And then she'd have a friend, uh, a group of friends who these would be her girls. And then uh, eight months later, they were all gossiping about her, and she was completely excluded from them. And, uh, and then she would kind of get on these toxic sort of uh, roller coaster relationships. And she came to me just so exasperated and angry. And, and, um, and we began to talk about realize, listen, if you want to have some of these relationships – and you want to move on for healthy relationships, you're going to have to deal with some of the pain and some of the trauma and some of the difficult things that have happened in these moments. And, and she, for months, did not want to do that. And then she came to me finally one day and she said, it, it hit me today. The reason I don't want to, to, to move back towards these girls who've hurt me so much is she said, I realized I don't want to lose control. See, if I go and apologize or if I go and tell them they hurt me, or if I go and just acknowledge uh, what has happened and, and try to dignify them in any sort of decent way, I'm sort of losing control in this. And see, what she began to realize is if I'm going to love these people, I'm going to have to take my hands off my life. And what Jesus is calling Christians to do today is the first move is that you're going to have to realize you have to lose control. And you're going to have to take your hands off your life for the sake of the love of the world. That's what the first move is. Thirdly, though, why do we need to make that first move? You know why you need to make this first move? You need to make it A for you and B for the world. Jesus gives a metaphor before this text when he talks about anger. You can go back and read it beginning in verse 21. And he says uh, for us to sort of deal with our anger. Uh, this metaphor is given that if you don't deal with your anger, you're going to be like somebody put in jail who's stuck in jail until the last penny is paid. And the image that Jesus is talking about is for people who we hate and, and provoke our anger. What that anger can do is it can sort of it can put us in a prison and almost make us stuck there. And what we instinctively want to do is we want to make other people bail us out of that prison through acts of revenge, through acts of bitterness, through acts of ghosting, and say, listen, you are going to bail me out of the anger that put me in here. But the problem is, is that Jesus points out in this metaphor, 
is that no one else has the money to pay for that anger. No one else can bail you out. The only person that can bail you out is you. See, what revenge is, it, revenge is like pouring gasoline on a fire, hoping that just because it's a liquid, it will function the same way as water. But when you pour that out, it, it doesn't put out the fire. It only makes the fire grow louder and harder and deeper and more painful. And look, when you make the first move with your enemies out on the floor and you lose your rights, it doesn't let them off the hook. You know who it lets off the hook? It lets you off the hook. Because if you don't let yourself off the hook, you're going to be stuck in jail for the rest of your life, bitter and angry with people who are never, ever, ever going to pay for something that will get you out of that jail. But what the cross did is it bailed you out. And Jesus is saying, listen, grab a hold of that, not your rights. Let yourself off the hook. And if you make those first moves, every time what it will do, it it will let yourself off the hook. But we don't just do it for ourselves, we do it for others. I mean, he says this in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Not even the Gentiles do the same thing? I mean, he's sort of saying, look, look, (laughs) yeah, look, Pretender love just loves everybody, loves people who are around me, loves, loves people who confirm what I think. But real love, it moves towards your enemies. And so he says this in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, when he says be perfect there, that, that's alarming because he's, you're we're wondering, is Jesus, are you calling me to do this all the time at every moment? And I've just got to never mess up with this. No, no, no. Here, the comment about being perfect is not on our consistency to do this, but on the nature of what is being done. That is, perfect love is given to people who don't want the love. He says this in verse 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There, there Jesus is saying, look, here, here's how gracious God is as a king. I mean, all kings love their people, sometimes the weak, but enemies of the state are put to death. But, but God is like this. He comes to the creation and says, you have rebelled against me, but I want to make a way for you. And the world A lot of it says, I don't care. Leave me alone. But even at that rejection, God doesn't say, okay, fine, have it your way. He looks at the world in our present moment and he says, okay, you don't want grace? You don't want saving grace? I understand, but at least have this common grace. At least take my sunshine. At least take my rain. At least take anything to make your life better now. Listen, take anything, even though you don't want me, in in the most loving way. He says, take my things. And what perfect love is, is is the imitation of that into this world. And, And Jesus is saying, this is the testimony that will change the world. Reflect the perfect love of your father. Prince William used to tell a story. That growing up uh, in Buckingham Palace, what they would do is every time they would go out in public, 
they'd be waiting for the car and Elizabeth would come and she would tighten their tie and fix their coat really tight and clean anything off their mouth. And the last thing that she would say to them every time is, remember, royal children, royal manners. Royal children, royal manners. That is, you know who you are. And so go reflect that as you're going out into this world. And what Jesus is looking at Christians in this text is saying is royal children, royal manners. And when we display that, that perfect love demonstrated in the hardest places, that's the greatest evangelism the world will ever taste. Martin Luther King in a sermon on this said this. He said, now there's a reason that Jesus says, love your enemies. It's this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there's a power there that eventually transforms individuals. So just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them. They can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at the transition period. But just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive. This is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. See, if we make the first move, it'll let us out of jail and it'll bring others into the salvation light. That's why we do it. So fourthly and lastly, though, how do we actually make the first move? How do we actually get out of the corner of the dance floor and actually get on there and and make the first move of taking our hands off of our life for people who have wounded us and we actually think are even hurting this world? How do we do it? We have to look straight at the gospel. See, the enemy of this kind of love is self-righteousness. See, what, what will keep you from being this kind of loving person and what will always make you a pretender is the appeal to yourself as a good and loving person. See, if you begin that way, everything you dish out, every form of retaliation, every form of ghosting, every form of revenge, every form of canceling, well, you will be able to say it and feel like people deserve it. You will do justice without mercy but it will cease to end up being justice. And what will protect you from that is the gospel, because if you think people, if you think love should be distributed to people who deserve it, people will cease to become people. They will become things like Stalin used to say, former things that you can just walk away from. Miroslav Volv, he says, listen, love and forgiveness fail because we exclude the enemy from the community of humans. And we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And what will bring us back is that we realize the heart of the gospel is not Jesus loving us because we deserved it or Jesus loving us because we even made the first move. It's because the gospel is Jesus made the first move. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. It's not while we were his friends. It's not while we were pursuing him. It's not while we even had a spiritual inclination. It's not while we were just. It's not while we were wise. It's not while we were politically intuitive or politically advantageous. It's while we were his enemies. That's when Christ died for us. 
See, the heart of the gospel is Jesus embracing us and making the first move with people who hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. It's a story about a woman named Jennifer Thompson Canino. In 1984, uh, Jennifer was watching some late night TV on her couch and uh, she fell asleep as the TV was on. And in the middle of the night, somebody broke in her window and attempted to assault her. She panicked, escaped, and got out, immediately called the authorities. The authorities came to interview her. She described a man with a profile, a face, and a voice. Not long after that, they arrested this man named Ronald Cotton, immediately convicted him, and sentenced him to life in jail. Eleven years later, in 1995, when DNA evidence um, came out, uh, Ronald appealed to his lawyers because he'd been convicted without any uh, physical evidence whatsoever. They turned out and found out that uh, Ronald had not done this crime at all. That DNA evidence exonerated him and he was released from jail. They began to wonder how in the world this could have happened. And they found out that what had happened for Jennifer is late in the middle of the night, before she was falling asleep, she'd watched a commercial where Ronald was the star of. And seeing his face and seeing his voice was triggered by the, by the terrible moment that she suffered. And she had wrongly accused this man who'd spent 11 years in jail for a crime that he'd never committed. Terrified and afraid of what would happen to her and the guilt that she had gone through, she reached out to him. And called him and she said this, if I atoned every day for the rest of my life to you, it would not be enough to make up for the years that you have lost. But Ronald Cotton replied, ma'am, you need to put all that guilt away. Before you even thought about calling me, I had forgiven you. I did it years ago. Then they hugged and Jennifer said to herself, all I could think was, am I really in the arms of the man I had falsely accused of assaulting me? What the heart of the gospel is, is people hurling insults at a savior, mocking him, laughing at him, wounding him, abandoning him, and him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's going to be very easy for you to continue to do what we've been doing in this culture, and it's stay on your side of the room. But the more we do that, the more the chasm in this culture is going to grow. And what Jesus did for you as a Christian is he walked out on that first move on the cross. Not when you asked him to, but when you didn't even want him in the room. And today he's asking you to follow him and to stand up and make the first move. Who else will do that in this culture? That's what Jesus calls Christians to do today. Let me pray. Father, we need a way forward in this world. We need a way forward to begin to heal, to begin to be one to begin to be friends again, to begin to work together again, to begin to eat Thanksgiving dinner again, 
to begin to celebrate holidays with, to begin to coach sports with, to begin to serve alongside with. We want that to exist. And we don't want to live in our little echo chambers, Lord, but we need people in this culture to make the first move. Would you help your church? Lord, be the people that would make the first move and follow you this way. Help us, Lord Jesus. In his name, and it's in Jesus' name that we do pray that this would happen. Amen.